Tychicus will tell, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, you have it also read, have it also read in the church at, of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, this is always uh, an enjoyable uh, time of the year. Uh, I will not be here for Father's Day uh, next week, so let me just wish everyone on Father's Day I start vacation. Um, you can probably tell where I'm going to be <laughs> and what I'm going to be doing. Uh, my intention is to catch all the fish on this shirt, or at least that, that type be down in the keys. So I won't be here for donuts for dads. But I was sitting there thinking about this. And you know, the next year, we're going to be doing this in our new church. And I saw the, uh, the paint selections and what the walls are. It's just going to be gorgeous. Uh, I saw that this week. And so when I mentioned donuts for dad, it's going to be that, that narthase is just going to be wonderful. And I think we need to step up our game next year. And instead of donuts for dads, I'm putting in a plug for uh, frittatas for fathers. How's that? <laughs> That, that, that inspirational thought came to me as I was sitting there, and I just thought I should start my message with that <laughs> word from the Holy Spirit. How's that? Okay? So, um, you know, uh, we kind of ended this book, the book of Colossians. Uh, it's been a great uh, study since the beginning of March. And as I was thinking about it, I, I thought it might be appropriate for us to just do a quick review. Not all of the takeaway truths, but at least some. Uh, to kind of, you know, remind us of the things that we have focused and centered ourselves on over the last three months. The fundamental purpose of our lives is to please God in every way. We saw this in chapter one, that a, a grounded, growing, and grateful believer will not be led astray. I think that's actually from Warren Wearsby, a quote from him. That was one of our takeaway truths. That, and this is one of my favorites. All that is deepest in God is summed up in Christ. Truly Maybe that is the central thought and uh, theme of the book of Colossians. Or how about our fullest life is in Christ, not man-made religion. Uh, we saw in chapter 3 that our identity in Christ motivates and enables our sanctification. And that all of our relationships 
serve as opportunities to glorify God. Then last week, uh, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, how we interact with unbelievers opens or closes doors of opportunity for gospel restoration. That was just a few of the 13 takeaway truths that we've had so far. This is the 14th message. Uh, we also had a lot of images with uh, the, these messages and pictures. So one of my favorite was at the beginning of chapter 2, where he was commending the the Colossian church for standing firm like a phalanx of Roman soldiers who, who could not be overcome. Uh, this inscription in the catacombs uh, where, uh, on a grave, and this was a common inscription on the, on the graves of Christians from the first century where they would have their name and this, this phrase that they were in Christ and in peace. And We've talked quite a bit about our union with Christ, and if you remember with this message and this image, we were able to once again enjoy the Lord's Supper like we have in past years, and what a special time that was of us celebrating our union with Christ. And then, of course, there was the message about uh, us wearing Jesus, and we saw the some of I think it's Rihanna, right? Or yeah, and from the Met Gala, and who is she wearing? I don't even remember who she's wearing. It looks like some gardener, but anyway, um, <clears throat> we are wearing Jesus to one another. So, what does it look like to wear Jesus to one another? Uh, and then I think probably my favorite graphic of this series was this. General Pauline letter outline. Do you remember that? I mean, almost every letter that Paul writes to these churches can be grace. And then I thank God for you. That's like always in chapter one. And then that encouragement to hold fast to the gospel. And then there's the section that says, for the love of all that is holy, stop being stupid. You know, there's always that portion. And then Timothy says hi (laughs) at the end. And we are actually this morning in the Timothy says hi portion of the book. Um, But ironically, at least in the book of Colossians, Timothy doesn't say hi at the end of this book. Uh, But if you remember, he said hi at the beginning of the book. And Paul mentioned him at the beginning, at least in the book of Colossians. You know, when you come to this section of scripture, it's not uncommon for uh, churches just to skip it. You know, pastors, and listen, I've done it. We've gone through, I mean, I, you know, guys, we've been through good, I don't know how many books now together over the last 15 years, but like Galatians and, uh, you know, First Thessalonians and First Corinthians and, you know, First Peter and all these different New Testament books that we've gone through. I really have kind of skipped through a lot of the ending there uh, with the listing of names. Sometimes I, uh, I haven't, but most of the time I have. But this morning, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I never like the Holy Spirit just willingness to take a few moments and look at this list because something just popped out to me in this list and in these names and the stories behind the names. And what was impressed upon my heart was how these people exemplify us and how the Lord uses the gospel to change the endings of all of our stories. And so I thought this morning that we would just kind of dwell on this and park here and see how this is the case and why this is the case. Now, just to, to be clear, the gospel, the gospel's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and he died on the cross 
for our sins so that we could be reconciled to our creator who we sin against over and over and over and over again. And because of his holiness, that sin cannot be overlooked. It has to be judged. It has to be punished. And Jesus took that punishment that we deserve upon himself on the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to our creator so that we could have a personal relationship with God. This is possible through the gospel. The word gospel means good news, and this is good news. And one of the reasons why it is such good news is that Jesus can change the ending of anyone's story, regardless of who you are. And these names demonstrate that. In verse 9, we read of Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who was one of you. You know, Onesimus is actually traveling with Tychicus, back to Colossae, and they're carrying letters to the church that meets at Colossae, to the church that meets at Laodicea. They're also carrying a letter to an individual by the name of Philemon. That's another book in the New Testament. Philemon is a a wealthier, more respected member of the church in Colossae. Uh, He was at some point came across Paul, and they were had a relationship. He was a benefactor of Paul. In fact, in the in the book of Philemon, Paul says, "Okay, get the guest room ready because I'm coming, and I want a place to sleep and stay." So they had that kind of relationship. But he's writing Philemon, and Onesimus is taking this letter to him. And I will tell you, Onesimus is very different than many of the people in that church. He's our faithful and beloved brother who's one of you. And what he means there is he's from your town. He's from your area. And specifically, Paul's path intersected Onesimus's in Rome. You see, Onesimus was a slave. And what he had done is he had stolen money from Philemon, his master. And he escaped and he ran away and he made his way to Rome. And there, Through God's providence, he intersects with Paul, and Paul leads him to Christ, and Paul disciples him, and now Paul is sending him back to Philemon, his master. This is the law of the land, and actually Onesimus' life was in danger. He could be executed as an escaped slave. And so in this letter to Philemon, Paul says, listen, whatever this has cost you, put it to my account. I'll settle the debt, and remember that Onesimus is no longer just your bondservant. He is now your brother in Christ, and your relationship has now changed. Remember this. But when you think about that, Onesimus, what we have here, <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Philemon and this reference here in Colossians, we have, for those of us who've enjoyed, you know, the Marvel movies and everything, what we have here is an origin story. This is the origin story of Onesimus. And his origin story starts in the most horrible condition. His origin story is about as low as you can possibly have it within any society. He's a slave. That's who he is. That's his origin story. He, he, his life, uh, maybe before Philemon became a Christian, may have been extremely difficult. And so here you have a person who reminds us That with the gospel, the gospel can overcome any origin story, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how traumatic, no matter how anxious and discouraging it may have been. In our church this morning, in this room, I guarantee you, some of you have origin stories that are traumatic. 
And because of the abuse that you've experienced, perhaps at the hands of other people, and you carry those wounds and you carry that baggage and you carry those memories with you and you know how it's affected your life. Others of you, your trauma is because through the years you have made decisions for yourself and the consequences of those decisions have brought deep pain and agony and anxiety into your life. And that trauma has been self-induced. Regardless of how it happens, some of you here this morning, your origin story starts out at a very low, low place. And Onesimus is here to tell you, Jesus is here to tell you through Onesimus, it doesn't matter. Your origin story can be as horrific as humanly possible. And Jesus can change the ending of your story. Through his grace, he can change the complete trajectory of your life. And so if you are here this morning, and maybe you are carrying all these things around with you, and perhaps you're even here, so that in some way you can find relief for all of the things that are welling up inside of you, the answer is Jesus. You heard Debbie a few moments ago, by the way, they celebrated their 50th anniversary this week. Congratulations, Brian and Debbie. Yeah. <clears throat> Debbie and other Stephen ministers will be at the care table. They would be delighted to speak to anyone who has a tough origin story and wants to know more about Jesus. And at the same time, in this passage, in verse 14, you have Luke. The beloved physician salutes you. Luke probably resembles more of you, us in here than Onesimus does. Luke, like today, in his society, would have been very respected he would have been honored in his culture. He was accomplished. He was educated. He was professional. He had his act together. He was valuable to society, performing a valuable task. Uh, all of you who are you know, engineers, or you're in the medical facilities, or you're small business owners, or you're educators, or uh, you know, other kinds of careers, you and Luke and your origin stories are very similar. But here's the thing about it. This man, incredible guy, joins, joins Paul in Troas during his second missionary journey. Ends up traveling with Paul as he goes over to the European continent. Experiences life with Paul for years in his second and third missionary journey. Goes to Jerusalem with him. Is there when Paul's arrested. He's with Paul in Rome as he's in prison. He will be with Paul all the way until his execution. He, 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 this guy, this doctor, a man who was a trained medical professional, ends up writing the majority of the New Testament. He writes 27.5% of the words of the New Testament, more than Paul himself. That's how this guy, this is the, that's the ending of his story. But where does he start? He starts like so many of you, professionals in some way or another, very competent, very respected and your origin story may not have the lurid details of, of somebody who was addicted to drugs and who's living in the gutter and, and now the Lord saves them and their life is so radically different. But your origin story is just as significant because here's the thing, you need Jesus just as much as the person who maybe their story is in the gutter. Because all of your professional success the respect and the benefits that come from being good at your job, 
And, and that's, that's praiseworthy and that's worthwhile and that's enjoyable. It's a blessing of your career, but ultimately, eternally, it has no real significance to your life and to your soul. You need something more than professional success. You need something more than the money and the toys and the houses and the good life that your career will bring you. If you don't have what you actually need at the end of your life, you'll simply be a miserable, rich person. That's what you'll be. You need Jesus. You need Jesus just as badly as the person who starts out at the opposite end of the spectrum. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can change your story regardless of where you start out in life, regardless of where you are right now. Secondly, what we see from this passage is that Jesus builds his kingdom through ordinary people who follow him. I'm going to read a few of these verses and where my pronunciation is different than Andrea's. Andrea's is correct. Okay. Verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, and the church in her house. The people listed in these verses, while they may be very different, had one thing in common. They were all very useful to Jesus in building his kingdom. They all participated and were instrumental in building the church there at Colossae. And when you think about these people and what Paul says about them, there are four insights into how and why the gospel can change the ending of all of our stories. The first and most obvious insight is that the gospel transcends all cultural barriers. In this passage, you have male and female names. You have Asians. You have Greeks. You have Romans. You have Africans. You have Jews. You have Gentiles. You have Christians and pagans. And the gospel breaks down all of those barriers. The gospel enables us to ultimately reject the world's criteria of who is important and who isn't. It enables us to break down those criteria that divide us and create so much of the strife that is in our world today. The gospel allows the white person, the black person, the brown person, the purple person, polka-dotted people-eater people to all get along with one another. It's summertime. You have to make at least one reference to purple polka-dotted people-eaters, okay? It's a, it's a song, young people, okay? Anyway. Uh, first, what these, this list tells us is that of first importance, it's not our station in life. It's not our skin color. It's not our, our nationality. It's not the size of our bank account. It's not our place in society's pecking order that is important. We all stand on level ground before the cross. And we are all loved and valued by our Savior. 
This is why Debbie a few moments ago said, don't sit there and suffer. Don't think that your pain is insignificant, that somebody else has it worse, so therefore I'll sit here. No, everyone who is in Christ is significant. So come forward, get help. We're all on level ground here. And, and because of that, there's a second insight that kind of builds upon this gospel equality. The gospel equality means that we can all be used by Jesus to build his kingdom. Every single one of us is usable by Jesus to build his kingdom, regardless of where you are in life. Young, old, rich, poor, educated, doesn't matter your skin color, your ethnicity, your background, your origin story, all of that, when it's laid at the cross of Jesus, makes us instruments of righteousness and usable by him. Certainly, the gifts and the abilities that he gives you and he gives me will mean that our roles in the kingdom are going to be different than each other's. But different doesn't mean better. Doesn't mean that because I have different abilities and gifts that my role in the kingdom makes me more important to Jesus in the kingdom than yours, or doesn't make mine less than yours because you have certain gifts and abilities. It's been said that in the kingdom, while there's these wide diversities of gifts and abilities, there are two abilities that are most important that we can all have. Those abilities are availability and dependability. And you see that in this passage. Nympha, for example, she makes her home available for the church to do ministry in. She's available. She takes her most probably precious possession, most of us, outside of our children, we would probably say our home is our, our castle, it's our place, it's, it's valuable to us. She makes it available so that the church can grow there. And then you see the dependability in this guy, Tychicus. Obviously, all of these folks would, would you could say are available and dependable, but Tychicus probably exemplifies this. He's actually mentioned by Paul in several books. He, he's with him for years and years and years. And you know what you see him doing? And you know why you see him being praised? Well, in this passage, he's praised because he's the mailman. That's what he does. He takes Paul's letters and he travels and he delivers them to all the different churches through the years. He's the guy who carries the letters. He's the, he's the you know, early church's mailman. That's what he is. And, and then later you see him entrusted with the offering for the Jerusalem church. And so he delivers the money to the Jerusalem church that was going through a famine. And then near the end of, G, of Paul's life, when he's facing execution, he sends Tychicus from Rome where he is imprisoned yet again to Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy can leave the church where he's pastoring, come to Rome to be with Paul, to comfort him in his last days. And Tychicus stands in for, so he's a supply preacher, an interim preacher for a while, interim pastor of the church at Ephesus. This guy, I mean, he embodies a plug and play servant of the kingdom. You know what I mean by plug and play, right? You just plug him in, boom, and they're off. That's that terminology. He's a plug and play servant. And when I thought about him, I said, you know, my heart just welled up in thanksgiving. I, I am so glad that covenant is filled with modern versions of Nympha and Tychicus. 
There's so many examples I could give as I look across the, this room of you who have opened up your homes, you've opened up your lives, making them available for the glory of Jesus Christ and the benefit of his kingdom. I mean, our church, uh, wow, we are filled with plug-and-play servants. And you give of your time and your finances and your gifts so that the, the, our home church is built up and the global church is built up and established for the glory of Jesus. Where would we be as a church if we did not have so many plug-and-play servants? If we didn't have so many Nymphus and Tychicus, how much poorer would we be as a church? I can't even begin to imagine. I can't begin to fathom it if we did not have this in our church. So many people who simply ask, well, what needs to be done? How can I help? What, what do you have to do? And I mean, I watched this on Sunday afternoons. You know, we have everything from children to senior citizens, carton cameras and carts and pitching in to, to make the the ministry of this church here, and this time, work. Plug-and-play servants. It's such a beautiful example of the power of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel in our lives. What is it that enables us and empowers us to make these things available, to be available, to be dependable for the use of this? It's because of the work of the gospel in our hearts. It's because we know that we stand level at the foot of the cross. And when you stand level at the foot of the cross, there's no place for arrogance and pride and primacy and all of that. We're all simply humble servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing is above us. Nothing is beneath us. We are just at his disposal. The gospel enables us to see the majestic in the mundane. Uh, it, it enables us to see what is um, kingdom important in the common task of life and of the kingdom itself. It empowers us to give our lives to these things. That's how the gospel changes us, just as it changed Nympha and Tychicus. Thirdly, a third insight is that the gospel empowers us to sacrifice for the kingdom when we're called upon to do so. In particular, in this list, there's two people who are called out for this. Aristarchus and Epaphras are noted for their sacrifice. Serving the kingdom put these brothers in prison with Paul. And by the way, prison at that point in time in history, it was a deplorable place to be. If you ever, ever make a trip to Rome, they, they have a place that they believe was the, the prison cell, ultimately, of the Apostle Paul. And, I mean, it's, it's like a, a, just a hole in the ground. It's like an outhouse hole, if you get my meaning. Nasty, nasty place. And these brothers, they're with Paul. Their call by Jesus was for them to be inconvenienced, was to be deprived of comforts, was to have their life endangered, all for the fulfillment of Jesus' plans for them and for the kingdom which called upon them to sacrifice their own personal desires. They're with Paul when he's beaten. They're with Paul when he was shipwrecked. And all of the drama that we read in, in, chapter, in, in Acts, verses 26 and 27 and all those, these guys are with him. They experienced hardship for Jesus. But isn't this what's expected? Aren't we told by Jesus that this is part of what it means to follow him? 
that all of us will sacrifice to some degree or another. Some will be called upon to sacrifice way beyond any limits that we think that we have. I've seen this even over the last couple of years as, as we've been in such a time of transition in our church. And Jesus has called on so many of us to sacrifice for, this, for the building project and this new facility that we have as, we're transfer, as we are transitioning. I've seen some of you uh, delay or cancel vacations. You've tightened your belts. You've, uh, you've experienced delayed gratification for a, maybe not getting the new car or another something else because you knew that Jesus was calling upon you to participate and to help build a, a new church facility, to help do the work that needs to be done here in Palm Bay. You're experiencing this call to sacrifice for the kingdom. For others of you, you, you experience this, this call in a different way. It's that call upon Jesus to step out and to say a word to that person at work and risk your, test, your, your reputation, to risk their opinion of you, to take on that burden of what if they now, and you can fill in the blank. And yet that sacrifice is what Jesus is calling for you so that his kingdom can be built and expanded in the life of that coworker. It's the gospel at work in our lives that helps us to see that what is eternally important is serving Jesus, making ourselves and everything that we have available to him and not keeping it simply for ourselves. There's a fourth insight. I just want to mention it briefly. Don't have time to really dwell on it, but I would be like betraying our church's values if I skipped over it. So the fourth insight is this, simply this. The gospel calls us to build the kingdom in community with other believers. This massive list of people at the church in Colossae reminds us that in Jesus' plan, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. These are common, everyday people who all come together with different gifts, different abilities, and they are living and doing life together as followers of Jesus Christ. And it is when we are together as believers serving him that God magnifies that effort exponentially. It's when we strike out on our own that we get picked off by the devil. I'm reminded several years ago, I remember Brian Lumshu Chan showing us uh, a film from the African Serengeti or the, or the, you know, the desert. And, and here's you know, this herd of uh, whatever they're they called, antelopes, jackalopes, I don't know. But you know, they're all running. And then there's this you know, lion over there, and there's this one animal who's not paying attention. And the herd is bounding along, and he's sitting there doing his own thing. And you know how this story is going to end. He's going down because he wasn't with the group. And it was a powerful image of how important it is that as we make ourselves available to God for his use, we are doing this service and community with one another. Well, one final application this morning of this truth as we close. Jesus ensures the ending of his people is one of redemption and not failure. Verses 10 and 14 introduce us to two people, Demas and John Mark. In, in verse 10, we read, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions 
If he comes to you, welcome him. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Luke, or, excuse me, um, Mark and Demas are important to, to point out. Demas is the warning for all of us. The warning in these verses is Demas, who is the pretender. You see, at this point in time, he's with Paul in Rome, serving alongside Aristarchus and Epaphras and going through all the hardships and the experiences as they are. But time will reveal that while he was saying and doing all of the right things, he was a pretender. And so later, uh, many years from this point, when Paul is back in Rome again, imprisoned, and now he is facing death, we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. This uh, yesterday, Friday, uh, I had a chance to get away, and Ed Kendrick and I and Michael Carey, who's preached here before, we went fishing offshore. And uh, as is always the case when you get Christian brothers together, uh, inevitably conversations will turn at some point to things of the kingdom and of church and Christian life. And, and as we were talking, Ed and I were talking uh, about so many of the things that we've seen in, in recent years, uh, he was telling me, hey, you, need to, you ought to watch that series on Netflix about Hillsong and, and Carl Lentz. And, and then we talked about the, the Mars Hill podcast and all that went on. And, and just what is going on in the American church and how there is just this, this unbiblical fascination with celebrity pastors and celebrity Christians and where, where church is entertainment rather than what God intended. I read an article this week uh, in Christianity Today where this, a guy said, uh, my life has been forever shaped by two New York City pastors. And he told a story of being a young man in his 20s moving to Manhattan. And, and there he uh, went to the, the one church where Carl Lentz was pastoring. And then he went to Tim Keller's church, Redeemer. And he said, you know, these two churches were such opposite ends of what was happening. And he goes, I went to the one church and it was a, an incredible experience rivaling the best concerts, the best events that I've ever been to. He goes, and, and they were fun and they were enjoyable and we would line up around the block for hours to get in. He said, but then... I went to this other church, that, this guy that I heard about, and I found that my, my soul was being formed, and I was being shaped and transformed into the image of Christ. He said, sometimes I would go to hear him, and he wouldn't even be up on stage. It would be someone else. He would intentionally bounce around so you could never predict where he was going to be because it wasn't about Tim Keller. It's about the gospel and what was preached and taught in that church. And yet, he says, I would continue to go back to the other because I was in my 20s and I enjoyed the entertainment. Because, and so now as an older man, I look back at my life and I wonder why. What was it that caused me to go that path? Ultimately, his experience at Redeemer caused him to join a, a church plant group that went out as a core group. And for years, he served in a church plant. We, we are in a weird place in American Christianity right now. And we have been for a while. And now we're having the fruit of that. And we're having 
celebrity pastors and celebrity Christians and, and all of this now deconstructing and walking away from their faith, leaving what they once professed to believe. And so as I and I were talking, we were thinking, like, guys like John, by the way, I'm not trying to be ugly towards anybody saying their names. This is all public record. Um, I'm, not, I'm not better or worse than them. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. But we're thinking about Joshua Harris and the wonder, you know, he wrote books that many of you have read. You listened to his sermons as he preached, and yet he has completely walked away from everything that he ever believed. He's disavowing his sermons and, and everything else. What happens? Why is this occurring? And it seems it's occurring more and more as of the last few years, as one after another changes so radically. Well, what what are we to make of them? Well, they are modern-day Demises. This is nothing new. It's just more known because we have social media and we have better ways of communication, but it's always been an issue in the kingdom of God. Always has been. And by the way, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus warned us of this. Do you remember his parable of the seeds and the sowers? He said, of all the different soils, there is a type of soil that the seed begins and it begins to grow, but the soil is shallow. And so the plant grows up fast and it looks good. And that's what we do in America, right? If you grow up and you look good, well, that means you must be put in front of people because you look good, even though the character and everything else is not yet in place. And as Jesus says, what occurs is that plant as the heat of that person, as the heat of life is applied, they wither, and it shows they were actually never believers in the first place. He even says it more strongly in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, at the last judgment, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not preach the gospel? Did we not tell others about you? Did we not do miracles, even casting out devils? And Jesus says, I will look at them, and I will say, depart from me, you cursed ones. I never knew you. It's important for us to understand here that for many who profess to be Christians, Jesus is actually like a, an intellectual concept. He's a philosophical paradigm, not a heartfelt reality. And so as a result, Jesus may be Savior in their head, but he's not Lord in the heart. And to be one of Jesus' people, he has to be your Lord and Savior in your heart, not just your head. Otherwise, the ending of your story will be failure and devastation and destruction, not success. You see, Jesus ensures, excuse me, where, where am I at? There we go. Jesus ensures the ending of his people is one of redemption, not failure. Demas was not one of Jesus's people. And people who only have Jesus as an intellectual savior and not Lord of the heart and life are not Jesus's people. Your ending is not ensured to be successful and a blessing. Instead, it will be that of a failure. So Demas is a huge warning to all of us. To every single one of us. 
children, young people. You've been raised in homes where all you've known is Jesus. Is he an intellectual concept? Oh, yeah, I believe Jesus. Or is he Lord? Is he the master of your life? If you want to have a relationship with God, your sin's forgiven. Jesus has to be Lord. Some of you are third and fourth generation Christians, maybe 70 years old of, or 80 years old of moral living. The saddest thing I think we'll see in eternity are people who lived all of their life like Christians, but weren't actually Christians. Well, there's, let's don't end on that. There's an encouragement here. And that is the story of Mark. Oh, it's late. Sorry. The, Mark, the normal disciple. Mark's story, man, he's the first Christian streaker. It's in the, in the Gospels. You read it. He was a streaker. He was, a, he was an exuberant young man. He got to see things as a young man that were unbelievable. He got to be around the apostles, around Jesus. His mom has the upper room. He get, he's a, has a front row on all that's taking place. And when it comes time for Paul and Barnabas to go on their missionary journey, Barnabas says, let's take my cousin Mark with us. And he goes. And at first it's great. But then when it gets tough, he wilts. He quits and he leaves in disgrace. When it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring him again, and Paul says, no, not this time. Ultimately, though, how does his story end? We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. Every one of us in here who knows Jesus, our story is Mark's story. We succeed and we fail and we fail and we sin. We have high points, we have low points, but that's not the end of our story. The end of our story, because we belong to Jesus, is one that is good. The gospel changes the ending of our story. We will fail, we will sin, we will be embarrassed, we will blow it, and yet we are secure in the hands of our Savior who will ultimately make us into saints that bring him glory. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. We thank you for the opportunity to focus on these people, their lives and their stories. We thank you for all that we have learned in the book of Colossians. We pray, Father, that this morning, with the exhortation to look deeply in our own hearts, that those who are here who may not know you as Lord in their heart, maybe they only know you as Savior in their head, You're a concept to them, Jesus. You are a thought. May may you become a reality. May their lives be changed because they turn to you and repent and receive you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we look in faith to the ending of our stories. We believe that you will, through the gospel, continue to change us, make us usable for your kingdom. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.